couple of things. If you're new with us this morning, we uh, normally on Sunday mornings, we're going through a book of the Bible that we study together. We're currently in a series on the book of Isaiah, and uh, we'll resume that again next week. We're working this spring through the first half of Isaiah, and then the fall we'll pick up on the second half. So I want to encourage you, uh, if it's your first time with us, we'll be uh, in, back in the book of Isaiah next Sunday. Also, um, starting something new after this morning's service, something the elder team has talked about a lot is just having someone... Um, having some folks up front who can pray uh, with people. If you've got something came up during the service or you've got a concern or something that you just want to share and have somebody to pray with, um, we're going to try to, after each service, have someone up here, a couple or somebody to, to, to be here. And so we're going to start that this morning. Brother Bob's going to be up here and, and uh, we'll be here after the service. Um, so s- certainly want to... Um, Stuart and I are always out the front door, and we certainly don't want to discourage you talking to us there, but we just kind of felt like there was a need to have something in here uh, that gives people that opportunity to see a person and, and get prayer for something. So please avail yourself of that, if you would, after the service. The website, uh, history.com, has a, a page about Easter symbols and traditions, and I'm quoting now. It starts like this. The Bible makes no mention of a long-eared short-tailed creature who delivers decorated eggs to well-behaved children on Easter Sunday. Aren't you thankful that that's, they, they got that right, it's not in the Bible. Nevertheless, the Easter bunny has become a prominent symbol of Christianity's most important holiday. A lot of people think about the traditions and the symbols that surround Easter, the bunny and the eggs and the chocolates, and it all sort of blends together, even though it has little or nothing to do with the real meaning of Easter. And yet, like Christmas, there's that potential for Easter to sort of become a cultural thing, a a fun day for kids and families to do stuff together, uh, void of any real meaning of, of what the day is. Historically, celebrations of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, particular ones that acknowledged the the day on which he was risen, go back to at least the second century. We're aware of records of those. But we also know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed the worship of the early church from day one. Uh, In fact, the worship of those who were trusting in God shifts from the seventh-day worship of the Sabbath to the first-day worship on the Lord's Day. Acts 20, verse 7 says believers began gathering on the first day of the week, and that is predominantly because that is the day on which the Lord rose. That became the day of, of celebration in their worship. And so Sunday became known as the Lord's Day. As for Easter celebrations, over time, they have obviously blended with culture. For many, this becomes sort of like a, a spring festival of sorts, but that is why I want to encourage you this morning that we need to understand, appreciate, and be able to articulate the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because people do wonder about these sorts of holidays. What is it that you celebrate on Easter? Well, it's the resurrection of Jesus. Well, tell me about the resurrection of Jesus. What does it mean? Why is that important? And so this morning, I want to just take you briefly through five answers to that question about the meaning of the resurrection, why it matters to us that Jesus Christ was risen from the grave. And I want to start with number one is the resurrection of Jesus Christ means we can believe God. First Peter chapter one, if you want to take a look there, first Peter chapter one, Peter is writing to believers and he's urging them that you need to live differently. You need to live in holiness. You need to be distinct from the world. And he makes the point in first Peter chapter one that, that, holiness, being different from the culture, is not not rooted in your character. It's not in your human effort to be different, but it is because 
of the death of Jesus Christ. That it is, he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, that it is the fact that the precious blood of Jesus Christ was shed is what frees us from slavery to sin and allows us to be different, to pursue holiness like our Savior is holy. But I want you to look at what he says about Jesus, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's making it very explicit that we are believers in God as he's writing to an audience of those who profess faith in Christ and he's saying we can believe this truth because God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. That's what affirms, that's what shows that what God says is true and believable. From the start of the Bible, God's eternal plan is to rescue a people for his own. It is to redeem them, to buy them out of sin and to make them his very own. And we see that as early as the book of Genesis where where man rebels against God, follows the lead of Satan instead of God and rebels and, and begins to sin and God immediately confirms what he has promised and that is if you rebel, you will begin to experience the consequences of that. There will be death as a result and all of Creation begins to experience death. Humans would now experience death because man sinned. But that's not the final word. God ultimately says there would be an offspring of the woman of of Eve in Genesis 3. There would be an offspring. There would be a, a child coming at some point. And that child would bring about a defeat of the enemy who is Satan, would bring about a crushing defeat of Satan. And so Genesis 3 describes it as Satan striking a blow at the heel of the child, but the offspring, it says, would strike a blow against the enemy's head, a defeating blow, a crushing blow. Paul seems to echo this in Romans near the end of his letter to the Romans 16.20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. On the surface, as we look at the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and we see the cruel torture of, of Jesus as he is nailed to a cross and he is hung between two criminals, it gives to the world the appearance that somehow Jesus is defeated, that somehow God's plan has been thwarted in some way and Satan is victorious. Jesus is violently beaten. He's executed in the most shameful and agonizing of ways. And so it's hard to fathom in that moment, in that darkness, that this is the one who has come to defeat Satan and to defeat evil and sin and death. If that was the end of the story, there would be no explanation for us being here this morning. There would be no reason for 2,000 years later for this local church and churches all around the globe to be filled with people who are coming this morning to worship Jesus Christ. But we understand that is not the end of the story. People from the first century on, from after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, began putting their trust in him even at the risk of persecution, knowing full well that they they could face the very same thing their master faced, the same kind of of, of suffering and even crucifixion, perhaps, execution for their belief. And yet they began to trust in him. Why would they do that if they were worshiping a dead man? If the trophy of their faith was a corpse, they would be fools. We would be fools to be here this morning. 
but we are believers in God, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is because our Savior lives that we take God at his word and we put our faith in him. We, we trust in him precisely because Jesus did rise and God's plan is carried through the Savior to redeem a people for his own. That, that belief gave birth to a community of believers that has been growing ever since so that here, 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are here because our ancestors reported seeing Jesus alive and it was recorded in the Gospels and in the New Testament epistles that the Savior is risen. And so we believe God because Jesus is risen. Secondly, because Jesus Christ is risen, we have hope. We have an all-surpassing, deep, abiding, relentless hope through any and all circumstances that we face in life. It says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, what I, I just read to you before, that your faith and hope are in God. He's, he's bringing the two together, that through the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ, your faith and your hope are in him. But he earlier in, in 1 Peter 1 sort of elaborates on what he means by this hope. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection. The Bible says that Christ's resurrection gives us not just a hope, but a, a vibrant hope, a real hope. That's why he uses the description of living, that this is not just a, 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 a hope that we sort of take by chance. There's, there's all kinds of hopes that people have concerning life after death. People have all sorts of ideas that they would put in the form of hope. You can go back to the, the pyramids in Egypt and the building of these gigantic tombs for their pharaoh so that they could fill it up with gold and silver and fine linens and all sorts of stuff that were supposed to be there to carry that pharaoh through the afterlife that they hoped that he would have. There was, there was hope, sure enough. There's hope by people today who will talk to you about um, karma and, and reincarnation, the notion that we... We all are doing good and bad things, and somehow that's all weighing for us a final tally, and when that time of death comes, you'll either be elevated into a higher standard of living of some kind because the good outweighed the bad, or you'll have to drop down to a lower standard and sort of back up and keep working on some things to get better for the next go-around. That's a hope that, that people have. Some hope that there's a, a place, an intermediate stop somewhere between earth and heaven, so that even if I haven't gotten it all together and haven't obeyed like I should, there's a place that will sort of purge off the, the rest of the sins so that I can get my way into heaven. There's all types of hope. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. We have a real hope that is based on the certainty of eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ was risen from the grave. And it is that hope then that allows us to unshakably hold fast whatever the circumstances are and to know that we belong to him. We sing of that hope when we are together. We sing with joy. We cling to that hope even when we are suffering. There are very few things in life that I am certain about, and any certainty that most of us had over the last two or three years has waned to even less and less that we are certain about. But I am certain of this. As Job said in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and after my flesh is destroyed, I will see my God alive. I will see him standing, and, and I will know that my Savior lives. I believe that with all my heart. That is our hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ 
gives us belief in God's word. It gives us hope. Third thing it means is Jesus is now the judge of all of mankind. Jesus is now judge on the basis of his resurrection. He is the judge of all mankind. 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter we often look at in Easter. It is a chapter that just explores the resurrection, and it talks about the eyewitness testimony to seeing Jesus alive, and it talks about the the reality that if there is no resurrection, there is no Christian faith. There is no hope, in fact. In fact, he goes on and he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised, then you're still in your sin, and we are the most miserable people on all of the earth because we've fallen for a ruse. We've, we've fallen for something that's not true if Jesus is not risen. It's just a dead religious zealot, and there have been plenty of those. But that's not the case. He's made the argument at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus has been seen alive and that Jesus is coming again. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, Paul writes, Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. By his resurrection... Jesus Christ is declared to be Lord and Master over all. He is the judge. He is the authority. He is the ruler. Romans 14, 8 and 9 says, Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. His point, again, is that if Jesus Christ dies, and that's the end of the story, there is no Lord of the living and the dead, but it is because he died and he lives again that he now has authority over all. In fact, Jesus Christ says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who says that? Who makes a declaration like that to say, all authority, everything you think of in heaven and on earth, all authority is given to me. It is Jesus who says that, and it is on the basis of his resurrection from the dead that he now is Lord and master over all. 1 Corinthians 4 promises that Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose purposes of the heart. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Whether you want to or not, you will stand before Jesus. He is now the judge of all of the earth. He is Lord and master over all. And in Revelation 20, the Apostle John describes that scene in heaven where Jesus, the, the righteous judge, is on his throne bringing final judgment on every human being. And he says this in Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The judgment of Jesus Christ will be the question of whether or not you have put your faith in him as Savior, as the one who was crucified and risen. Your works will be the demonstration of that faith. That's his point when he says that they will be judged by their works. But the point is, Jesus is the judge of all mankind because he is the sinless one who gave himself on the cross to die in our place. And then because of the resurrection, he shows that he is living Lord and Master. He is the, the authority over all. Peter, just a 
matter of weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, after having denied Jesus at that time of his trial, Peter stands in the streets of Jerusalem in the power of the Holy Spirit and boldly declares in Acts 2.36, let the house, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This one that you executed that you've all talked about, you all saw the gory scene, and you all know that he was put to death, he was tortured to death. God has made him Lord, that is Master, and Christ, that is Anointed One, that is the Savior. You don't do that unless he is living, unless he has risen from the grave. So the resurrection of Jesus means we can believe God, means we have hope, means Jesus is judge of all of mankind, and it means the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that sinners can be justified before God that sinners can be declared as righteous before God, so satisfying uh, God's judgment. The, the book of Romans makes it clear that believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential. It's a non-negotiable belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God what? Raised him from the dead. Right then you will be saved. You must believe in the resurrection because the idea is certainly you, you know the crucifixion, but the crucifixion is meaningless without the resurrection. If he has not been raised, then he has died as any other religious teacher has. Jesus died a sacrificial death. He endured God's punishment for our sin. And by his resurrection, that is the confirmation that his sacrifice was sufficient to save sinners, that what he did on the cross accomplished the, the price of our redemption to buy us out of slavery to sin. The resurrection is decisive. Earlier in, in, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, Paul's teaching there about the, the essence of faith as being the, the, the point of our salvation. We, we, it's by faith you are saved, not by, by works. He's countering the, the, the legalists who are saying, well, in order to be made right with God, to be declared right, you've got to perform, you've got to do deeds, you've got to tally up a score. And Romans 4 is making it clear that no, just, just as was the case with Abraham, when he believed God's promise, then it was credited to him as righteous. It's by faith that he was saved. And so too are you and I, it is by faith. And at the end of Romans chapter 4, he says that righteousness will be counted on the basis of faith. And then he explains this, Romans 4, 24 and 25. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Again, you see, he's coming back to the resurrection and saying this is pivotal. If you are to be declared Right before God, it will be because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justification's a, a legal term. It says this one is just or, or right. This one is declared righteous, and it's legal language. And what it means is a person can stand before the living God of the universe, even though the truth is we know we're sinners. We know that we're guilty. We know our hearts. We know our own rebellion. We know what kind of thoughts go through our mind. And yet he's saying, it is that faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that declares one to be righteous. We are guilty and we deserve punishment, but Jesus was delivered over for that, nailed to the cross, and then raised to life. Had his blood and his death not satisfied God's requirement, 
Had his sacrifice not been sufficient, Jesus would have remained dead. That's the point in Hebrews. All of the blood that was spilled, all of the sacrifices that were given were done over and over again. The Old Testament sacrifices of all of the animals was done repeatedly because they were all pointing and saying, there must be one that is sufficient to take away sin. And the way that you'll know is that one is raised from the dead. It is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 puts it this way. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins because they're not paid for. Because fundamentally, we are, we are lost then. Jesus was raised. It was his resurrection that declares the, the truth of our justification. His death was enough. When on the cross, he cries out his final words, it is finished. The work of redemption is accomplished. The price has been paid. And the resurrection will now be the, the, the proof of our justification. Romans 8 begins with that glorious assurance. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, there's a part of us that should pause and go, how can that be? Because I, I know that I'm, I'm guilty and yet there is no condemnation. And later in the chapter in Romans 8, 33 and 34, watch again when the resurrection comes up. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There it is again. The person who has faith in Jesus Christ will not be condemned for their sin because Jesus died for that sin, but Paul says even more than that, he was raised, and he is ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of God. He is a living Savior, and so his death is unlike the death of any other so-called religious leader who was buried and remains dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means sinners can be justified before God. So we can believe God, we have hope. Jesus is judge of all mankind, and we can be justified before God, all because of the resurrection. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can have unparalleled, unparalleled unique power for living today as followers of Jesus Christ. It means power for us, not in a worldly sense here. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 for just a moment, Ephesians 1 begins with this celebration of our salvation, unfolding the fact that, that God in eternity past predestined to people, that he had a, a plan to save them, to adopt them as children, to um, forgive them, to lavish his grace on them, all of these truths that are poured out in the early verses of Ephesians 1 that are meant to not simply inform us intellectually, but are meant to change how we live today. In light of knowing that God did this, then our priorities and our desires and our thoughts should all be affected by that. And yet, the reality is, even as brothers and sisters here, we know that we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, there are still times we get stuck when we are struggling with temptation, when, when we are still in these bodies of flesh that are still accustomed to ways of sin, and, and we feel like we're not changing, or, or, or we're just in a place where we're not, we're not becoming more like Christ, and we get frustrated. And, and that's why Paul, after spelling out these truths, then prays. It's as if he has expounded these glorious things that God has done for us, and then he says, but wait a minute, let, let me pray here for just a moment and pray that, that you would 
understand these things. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. What is this power? This might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let's come back to the resurrection again. There's two things going on in this prayer. First part is thanksgiving. Every time I think about you, I, I thank God for what he's done. I thank God for how he saved you and bestowed grace on you. I, I thank God for his wondrous work in your midst. And then he intercedes. He goes from the thanksgiving to the prayer, and he says, now I pray that you would grasp all that God has done, that you would avail yourself of all that God has done, that you would recognize that what God has done and supplies for you is what is there for you to, to rely on and depend on and, and, and live by. This prayer, ultimately, when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, would be opened. He's saying, I'm, I'm praying that you would have the deepest possible level of understanding, of appreciation, of, of comprehension, that you would get it. And he says in particular three things. He says, I'm praying that you would understand the hope to which you have been called, praying that no matter what you face, you, you understand that you have a hope that is all surpassing. He says, I pray that you would understand the riches of his inheritance in you. So he's saying, I, I hope you understand the fact that God, who owns it all, yet sees you as his inheritance. He treasures you as his. So I'm praying that you would comprehend what that means to have God love you in that way and treasure you in that way. But then third, and this is the one I just want us to think about for a few minutes, he says, I, I'm praying that you would grasp the incredible power that God supplies to you, that is power toward you, as he describes there. That what is it, verse 19? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And it's that last one then that he, he takes the, the people he's praying for and who he's writing to, and he, and, and he takes us back to the tomb to say, look, it's empty. Can you imagine what kind of power it took to do this? This was, a, this was the tomb of a, of a corpse that had been beaten, that had been nailed hands and feet to a cross for hours to die, that had been pierced in the side, was, was clearly dead, was buried in this tomb for part or all of three days. And now he's alive, and he wasn't simply resuscitated. This is the difference between Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus is going to suffer frailty and, and all the things that are still ahead in life, and he will die again. Jesus has been raised to new life, and he will never die again, never to suffer or die again. And Paul's saying, think about that power, the power to do that in an instant. And he says, that's the power that is toward us who believe. Paul's trying to, to just sort of pile on language in verse 19 when, when he says this is the exceeding greatness of God's power, the, 
the, the overflowing meganess of God's power, if you will. This is such great power. And then he says, according to the mighty working of his strength, in verse 9. I, I'm not sure the ESV can even fully capture there what Paul's trying to convey, because he's using three different words altogether to magnify God's power. There's the exceeding great power, but then he says the working of his great might. Great and might are two different nouns. The first one has the idea of strength or dominion. This is, this is a power that is authoritative power, that is ruling power. It has dominion. It has full power over something else. And the second term that he uses there is, is strength as in capacity or ability to do what one sets out to do. It's exceedingly great power. It's dominion over that which it rules over. It is power that is sufficient to do everything that the one who's doing the empowering sets out to do. He's just piling up these descriptions to take us back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to say this is the power of God in that. And that power now is supplied to you and I. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, this unbelievably great power, this power that has dominion over life and death, this power that fulfills God's eternal plan to have a Savior who would give himself in death and then would be raised to new life. The resurrection shows us God has the full power to do all that he intends to do. And the prayer here for believers is, I pray that God, through his Spirit, would open your eyes wide to, as you ponder the resurrection, to see in it the remarkable power of God and now know that he is wanting to, to pour that power into your life and into your struggles and your heartbreak and your temptations and the things that you are walking through that feel so difficult. He's wanting to empower you by his grace to say, rely on me, trust in me. My power is sufficient. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10 that it was his desire to know Jesus, know Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. Understand what, what goes on in that resurrection because that's the kind of power God is pouring into our lives. Colossians 3.1, he prayed believers would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The power to to overcome temptation, the power to live in the flesh with all of our weaknesses and struggles, the, the power to think and act in newness of life and to be like Christ. We're not called, I know we've said this so many times before, but we're not called to just sort of embrace the gospel as, okay, that it did its job and it saved me, but it's this ongoing work of Christ to continue to grow us and empower us to live like Christ and to be different. And that's the power that was in the resurrection. My friends, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. It is the, the very center of our faith. It is the reason for the living hope that we have. It is why we as sinners can be justified by a holy God. And it is the proof of God's power to strengthen and transform us. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 earlier chapter where he exposits, if you will, the, the resurrection. Declares that without the resurrection, there's no Christian faith, there's no hope, we're fools if it's not there. But Jesus did rise, and at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, his final summary statement 
about the reality of the resurrection and what it should mean for you and I is verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's saying, I I don't want you to know the resurrection just so you can be an apologist and defend the resurrection. That's good. Tell people about the truth of the resurrection. Tell them about all of the the things that verify that the resurrection is real and, and the body of Jesus was never found. In fact, he was seen alive. That's all good. But he says to brothers and sisters in Christ, therefore, the fact that Jesus is risen should make you steadfast. The word in the Greek is actually used to mean a chair. It should sit you down in a place that you are rested, and you know that I have this, I believe this, I know this. Steadfast, immovable, unshakable. This is a command from the Lord Jesus. When he says, be steadfast, immovable, that is an imperative verb. Let nothing move you from the truth that Jesus rose, and that because Jesus rose, he is now at work in you, And he is now empowering you to serve him. And because Jesus rose, he says, always give yourselves fully to serving him. Don't be half-hearted. Don't be weak. Trust him. Rest in him. Know that his power is real. And give yourself fully to your risen Savior. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we celebrate your resurrection. We come before you as a thankful people because we, we understand from the scriptures that you yielded, gave your life over to be crucified on a cross. You set aside all of the prerogatives of being king, of being the mediator and Lord over all of creation, to be nailed to a cross and to suffer and to bear on that cross the holy wrath of your Father that that rightfully should fall on our sin. And you bore it in your body so that you might pay the price so that today we, we can rejoice and praise you. We thank you that you are risen. Thank you that the resurrection demonstrates that your, your sacrifice on the cross accomplished the work that it was designed for our redemption. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone listening here this morning, in this room, watching online, their hope for the afterlife is something that they are not sure of, they're not sure what would happen if, if life ended today or this week. I pray that today that your spirit would draw them to see that there is a certainty that comes from knowing Jesus Christ, from believing that He is the Savior, that He died for sin, that we need forgiveness, and that is what makes us ultimately to be right before You. Father, would You do that work this day? Cause this Easter to be one that for some would be the most memorable day ever, that they would find faith in Jesus Christ and believe in Him with their whole being. Lord, for Your people as we are gathered here, Thank you again for the truth of the resurrection. Thank you that we serve a living Savior. Thank you that we serve a King who is coming back for his own. Thank you that because of his resurrection, we can approach your throne with boldness and confidence and cry out for help in our time of need. 
and that you are eager to empower us to live like Christ. We sing now with great joy as a people who worship and serve a risen and coming King, in whose name we pray. Amen.